Well, good morning, GBC family, and welcome to another uh, media broadcast of our Sunday worship service. I'm glad you could be here with us. Uh, thank you for, again, carving out the time uh, each Sunday uh, to be able to share with us and our fellowship, even though we're unable to meet together. But it looks like it's getting closer. Um, there are restrictions that are being lifted in other places, so we're hoping that uh, within the next week or so that San Mateo County will give us the okay uh, to meet uh, once again. Uh, but we'll keep you informed through email um, of the progress of that. Also wanted to acknowledge uh, Ivor Lindors had his uh, birthday this last week, and Ivor is one of the original members here at Grace, and uh, we want to congratulate Ivor um, for just his servant's heart being here at Grace for so many years. And uh, hopefully we wish you good health, Ivor, and God's blessing on your life and look forward to more years to come. Also this past week, we were able to uh, do a drive-by for Pastor Steve uh, for his birthday. So those of you who were able to participate, thanks for being part of that. And um, that was a fun time. And coming up is uh, Mrs. Pastor Steve's uh, birthday coming up this coming week. Uh, so keep her in your prayers as well. Uh, wishing her uh, a good birthday day. Um, before we get started, uh, just a couple brief things uh, we'd like to go over, and that is our usual meetings every Tuesday, Wednesday, uh, and Thursday. Uh, Tuesday, ladies' Bible study uh, at 7.30 or 7 o'clock. Uh, Wednesday, Bible study at 7.30, and Steve sends out the message prior to that point and the outline. And also Thursday, ladies, for your uh, Thursday morning prayer time. I uh, just want to continue to remind you of that and invite those of you who may not have attended before to encourage you to be part of the, the Wednesday night uh, study uh, as we get closer to meeting over in Fellowship Hall. Um, but uh, it's, it's been a real blessing. Steve is going through the book of Ecclesiastes, and it's some very practical applications, especially in the times that we're living in. Uh, so we look forward to you uh, being part of that. Uh, before we get started, it's always our custom to read, God, read from God's Word, so if you would, just pull out your Bibles, and um, uh, Emmanuel will come and uh, let us know uh, where he's reading from. So God bless, and uh, thank you for being with us today. Hello, everyone. Uh, let's read uh, 2 Peter chapter 1. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who calls us to his own glory and excellence, by, he, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, 
they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more vigilant to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our God, of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for, for your word, Lord, that we can still freely um, walk around with Bibles and we can uh, share your word. Lord, I just ask that you would... Um, uh, help us, Father, that we may have conversations, Lord. I ask that you would open doors for us to even share the gospel at home with, with our family members, Lord, as we uh, get out of this quarantine. I just ask, Father, for all of our family members who are unbelievers. Lord, we, we worship you, Father, for the glorious offer of salvation that you make to humanity. Thank you for all of those that you have saved. Thank you for the great example of love that you have showed us, given your only son, so that we may have eternal life. In the name of Jesus Christ, I ask that you would prepare our hearts today. Amen. Thank you, Emmanuel, for that scripture reading. And Ken, for those announcements, appreciate you both. Today we're looking at the biblical implications of idolatry, the biblical implications of idolatry. Now remember, we're in 1 Corinthians. We've been in this book for some time, chapter 10. And we're in this section where the Apostle Paul is dealing with a specific subject. He's been dealing with the subject of Christian liberty or Christian freedom. In other words, what does the Christian have the right to do in the area where maybe the Bible doesn't even speak about? A gray area, we call it. What does our liberty allow us to be free to do? What are the limits to that liberty that as believers we have? And one of the questions the Corinthians was asking in reference was in reference to meat offered to pagan idols. Was it right for them to eat this meat that had been offered to an idol? And we've looked at that on several occasions. And that introduced this whole area of Christian liberty in non-moral things. Some things, the Bible's very clear, you shouldn't do these. Other things, the Bible says you should do these. But there's a big gap in between where simply the Bible doesn't speak of certain things. And the book deals, the book of Corinthians, deals with problems that faced the Corinthian church and that even face all believers in churches across the world today. Uh, some of the problems are the ones which Paul himself recognized, others were problems that the Corinthians recognized and brought that to Paul's attention. And so they wrote him a letter inquiring about some of these things, and this is one of his letters in response to their inquiry. And so we're, we're talking here then in chapter 8, verse 1, through chapter 11, verse 1, of the liberty, the freedom of the believer, that we've been set free in Christ. We're no longer bound by ceremonies or traditions or rituals or Forms of worship or routines or holy days, the New Testament says, or new moons, feasts, Sabbaths. 
any of those religious trappings we're now free of. Uh, we're free to be guided internally by the gift that God has given us through the power of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling power of the Spirit. And now there are many things in the Bible that are forbidden, and there are many things that are encouraged in the Bible. But then there are some things that aren't even mentioned. And the decisions that we have to make in life really boil down to what do we do about the things that aren't mentioned? How do we live our lives in light of what the Bible doesn't say? How do we know what is right and what is not? What is the guideline? How do we measure our liberty? Well, the Corinthians brought up this whole question by asking that, that, that question of can we eat meat offered to an idol? Now in the day, you have to remember, the pagans would constantly offer meat to idols in their worship. And some would go to the priests of the, of the pagan temple. Some would, uh, they would take and they would consume it themselves. Some would go back home. Um, some would be taken to the market and be sold um, and bought by other people. And so the chances were very likely back in this time that if you were eating meat, it was more than likely offered to a pagan god. Now, the Corinthians wanted to know, is that right? Is that right for the Christian to eat meat offered to a pagan god? And so the mature Corinthians had decided, well, it's fine to do that. And they were right. Because an idol isn't anything any, anyway was their argument. In other words, there's only one true god. You can make all the false gods you want. It doesn't matter. It doesn't change the fact that there's only one true God. So an idol is nothing in their mind. In addition to that, they made the point that God doesn't really care what we eat. And since an idol isn't anything and it doesn't matter what we eat, go ahead and eat this meat offered to idols. It doesn't matter. Now these were mature believers, but there were also some young believers in the Corinthian church. Some, you might say, weaker Christians who were saying, well, I just came out of this life of paganism and we used to go to the temple and offer this, uh, our, our sacrifices to the pagan god and now you Christians are eating it? They just couldn't handle it. They didn't understand that it was okay to do that. And so there began to have some conflict within their own church about this. Um, and they wanted to know what's the right thing to do. And so we introduce to ourselves a very important point, and we looked at this over the last couple of weeks, that we may have the liberty to do something theologically and technically according to the word of God. We may have the freedom in Christ to do it, but is it the best thing to do? Because it, it may be restricted by considering someone else, namely how it affects someone else. It may be all right in, in terms of morality. It may be all right in terms of biblical ethics, you could say. And technically, there's nothing in the scriptures that forbids you to do that certain thing. But how is it going to affect others that you come into contact with? If he maybe doesn't understand that it's okay to do this thing as a Christian. Some, some things like this are things like uh, style of music, uh, drinking wine, alcohol, uh, tobacco even. These are kind of gray areas to some extent. Um, if you are a recovering alcoholic, for example, and you come to Christ and you're saved, then 
if you went over to another Christian's home and they offered you a glass of wine, you could potentially be greatly offended by that. Even though there's nothing wrong with, according to the Bible, having a glass of wine once in a while, as long as you're not getting drunk. I don't think it should be encouraged, but people do it all the time. And so you have to discern that. And you have to be willing to say, well, even though it's my right to have this glass of wine, I'm going to not do it because I don't know, maybe our guest has that kind of a background of alcoholism, or maybe he doesn't. And so rather than just flaunting your right as a Christian to be able to do that, you should take into consideration others. And so people who come out of that kind of a background, an alcoholic background, would not most likely have a lot of grace toward Christians whom they would see drinking any kind of alcohol. Or even a musician who comes out of a kind of a, maybe a rock background who was involved in drugs and illicit sex and all that, and maybe they were a very gifted musician. I've known several musicians who have gotten saved out of that background, and then they come into the church. And you know what? They, they don't want to play their instrument, even though they're very gifted at it. Why? Because it reminds them of all the chaos and all the sin that they were involved in before. And a lot of times they're very rigid. They end up being very rigid, their musical style and taste. And they sometimes have the, the attitude of accusing anybody who would listen to anything other than hymns of being unspiritual. And so there are different kinds of those kind of issues in every culture, in every society, in every period in man's history. But here in terms of the Corinthians, there's the question that they're asking. And Paul says basically there's two answers to your question. Is it okay to eat meat sacrificed to a pagan idol? Uh, first of all, Paul points out technically you have the right to do certain things. But ask yourself, how is it going to affect others if I do this? See, the Corinthians were missing that. They were just all about me, myself, and I. And sometimes we have to pause and say, wait a minute, this is a little bit bigger than just me. Is it going to make my Christian brother or sister stumble who may be weaker than me? Is it going to be maybe offensive to unbelievers? Maybe they won't understand. So you have to consider that. And then secondly, he says, even though you may have technically the right to do it, how is it going to affect others? Secondly, he says, how is it going to affect me? Sometimes our actions, most times, our actions have personal effects. They affect us. I mean, we may be able to do a lot of things in Christ. We may have the freedom to do a lot of things. But you know what? A lot of times we have to rein ourselves in because we know that if we go and do something in a certain way or a certain time or whatever, it could lead us down the, the path of sin. And so we have to be careful, even though maybe we're free to do certain things, we don't want to live too close to the edge. We don't want to push our freedom in Christ right up to the edge of sinning. And that's the issue that the Corinthians were dealing with. Um, some of them thought, well, it's okay to eat meat offered to idols, and, uh, you know, if I buy it at the butcher shop or I eat it at a friend's house, that's okay. As a matter of fact, you know, I think maybe we should uh, reach out 
to our society. And maybe we should start going to some of these pagan feasts. And because it's not wrong to eat the food. And, you know, besides, we're supposed to be the light and salt of the earth. So let's go out there and, and we'll do some fellowship with these people who are pagans and try to reach them for Christ. And what happened is they had no problem going into these pagan temples and having festivals. And they were even indulging in the activities. And that's what was really pushing their liberty over the edge. See, and when Paul introduces this in chapter 8, 9, and 10, he says, on the contrary, rather than running your freedom in Christ right up to the edge of sinning, you should be doing just the opposite. You should be asking yourself, wait a minute, does this affect others and how does it affect me? And he illustrated the, the first one in chapter 9 and he illustrated the second question, how does it affect me in chapter 10? He discusses how the abuse of liberty can affect us. We don't want to push right up to the edge of sinning. You can think you're all right and you can, oh, that's, I'm fine, I'm a strong Christian, that won't bother me. But remember what we looked at last week, therefore let him that thinks he stands, take heed, what? Lest he fall. We don't want to become prideful in our liberty in Christ. And so Paul exhorts the Corinthians to make sure that they don't do anything that offends somebody. As he did not do in his own ministry, and he illustrated that in chapter 9 for us. So today we're going to look at chapter 10, verses 14 and 15, just two verses, and we just want to share some things about idolatry, kind of introduce this subject to us. But look at the text for us, and I'll read this for us, and then we'll pray and begin our study. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 14 and 15. Therefore, my beloved, flee idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Father, we ask that you would open our hearts and our minds to your word. We pray that you would uh, give us focus, give us clarity, help us to be able to apply these verses to our lives today as we look at the subject of idolatry. And Father, it can creep into anybody's life. More than likely, it's already there. And Lord, we just pray for your spirit to expose it so that we could repent of it and uh, turn back to you. Father, we thank you you for your grace. We thank you for your word. We pray that your spirit would enable us today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. He starts with the word therefore. Therefore. It's a very particular particle. And it's very intense, by the way. And it's simply a logical connection back to what he has already said about temptation. And he wants us to be connected to that previous verse and those previous verses. And so he says, therefore, based on what I've said, here's what I want you to hear. Beloved, my beloved, flee from adultery. By going right out to the edge of that which is allowable, you can fall into the, the sinful. That's what he's saying. He's saying, be careful. Just because you have the freedom to do something, that doesn't mean you just run right up to the edge and do it. And so we have to be careful with our liberty. We may fall into sin if we push it too far. And the Corinthians, who were already convinced, convinced here that an idol was nothing, and they were okay with that, and God didn't care what you ate, they began to attend certain pagan feasts. 
And apparently they had already begun to do it because back in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, verse 11, it says, But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of, listen to this, sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. So apparently the Corinthians thought, well, it was okay to go to these pagan feasts and carouse around with these folks. They had the freedom in Christ to do that. It didn't matter what they ate. But Paul wrote them and said, no, that's not okay. Uh, some of the brothers were not only fornicators and, 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 it, and <laughs> some of the brothers were not only fornicators, but they also had issues with idolatry. They were actually doing this. And so it's very important that we understand that this is not a good direction for a believer to go in. How near does my liberty let me go, people ask. How far can I go? That's not the right question to ask. <laughs> the right question to ask is, how far can I fly away from it? How far can I flee from sin? You don't use your liberty to get closer to sin. You use your liberty to get away from it. He says there, Flee from it. In other words, go in the opposite direction. The liberty that I enjoy in Christ does not give me the freedom to run right up to the edge, to expose myself needlessly to temptation and sin. It gives me the liberty to turn around and run the other way. John MacArthur said this about Christian liberty. He said, Christian liberty is the freedom to do right for the first time in your life not to run up against wrong. So he says there, therefore, based on what we just talked about as far as temptation, and then he says, my beloved. See that little phrase there, my beloved? It's an uncommon phrase in the Greek, and it's, it expresses a deep sentiment of his heart. Uh, in other words, he's concerned about them. I mean, he founded that church. He was really concerned about their spiritual issues they were going through. And he wants them to know that, look, I still count you as my beloved in spite of all the problems that you have going on. I'm still counting you as my brothers and sisters in Christ. You're my beloved. And many of them were still very immature spiritually. They hadn't grown properly. And Paul even comments on that. And so this isn't just an academic greeting. It's a very emotional greeting. And he wants them to know the dangers of idolatry. But he tells them there, basically, to flee from idolatry. He tells them to flee from idolatry. See, Paul turns from the dangers of overestimating one's own strength. And he says, you know what? It's incompatible for a Christian to be worshiping an idol. It's incompatible. It's inconceivable. See, one thing that we've learned from the history of Israel is that even though Israel was being strengthened by God's grace continually, you see that all the time in the Old Testament when you see it. God was continually giving them grace. They were not even immune against the temptation of idolatry because that's exactly what they ended up doing, making idols. And so the common sense thing to do if Israel had the presence of God dwelling with them and they saw his grace time and time again and they still fell to the sin of idolatry, how should we think that we could deal with it 
And so Paul tells them, don't, don't think that this isn't something to be played around with. You need to run. You need to flee from idolatry. And when we read this, the, the aspect of idolatry, a lot of Christians who read the Bible find it difficult to believe that worshiping other gods would ever even have been a problem, either for Israel or the early first century Christians. And that's because they've never really stopped to analyze what the attraction was. Why were they always going after idols? Well, for one thing, Israel looked at all the other nations and they had gods that they could see, little statues and all kinds of things. Israel wanted to be like the other nations, even in their religion. And being different is, it's a burden. It's still difficult for God's people to accept, even today. That's why we're called a peculiar people. But they also wanted a God who was visible, who could be located, before whom they could bow and stand. There was something a bit just too spacey about the God who insisted that he was a spirit. The instinct to have an experience with the living God and to memorialize it by erecting a building is still with us today. We do this all the time in our modern day culture. But one of the real attractions of most idol worship is that it often speaks to the more base elements that people have. This is why we're always tempted to use our religion to justify our pride or prejudice or lust or materialism. You know, as I thought about this this week, I don't really have any temptation to join in the worship of a man-made idol. I mean, it's, you know, I've traveled to different countries and I've seen people worshiping idols. And I was never tempted to say, wow, that looks attractive. You know, I'm, I'm more inclined, I think, to take a picture of it than to bow down and worship it. I just wouldn't do that. I remember when I was younger, we went to the Vatican, and boy, there's statues and rings you could kiss, all kinds of things. People were bowing down and genuflecting before all these statues and all kinds of things. I thought, boy, this is weird. I mean, it just looks like a piece of stone to me, and I was, you know, wasn't even a Christian then. Plus, I thought, well, I'm not going to kiss that thing. How many people have kissed that, that ring or, or that statue? But does this mean that I'm no longer susceptible to the temptation to worship idols? Not really. Not really. All it means is that I'm not tempted to worship idols of that kind, of a statue or a little wooden something. See, like the prophet Isaiah, I'd figured out the inconsistency of cutting down a tree and using part of it to make a fire and cook a meal and part of it to make a God to pray to. He talks about that in Isaiah 44, by the way, verses 17 to 18. And he says, save me for thou art my God. That's what they say. See, if an idol is whatever takes the place of God, that the affection that I should have for God in my heart, if an idol takes the place of that, then all of us continue to be tempted to worship idols. It may be different. It may not be made out of a piece of wood or a rock. But sometimes we fail to realize that an idol can be anything. An idol can be our work, our family, our body, our house, our hobby, our 
resources, even our religion can be an idol. If anything, besides God gets our best thoughts, our tears, our feelings, and our energy, are we not just more sophisticated idolaters? The temptation to idolatry does not come to us with a clear label, which warns us, big, bright, yellow letters, beware of idolatry. No, it doesn't come that way. It comes naturally blended in to our lives, so we don't even notice it at times. Is not this the constant temptation of our lives and the reason that none of us should consider ourselves as being over-attempted to idolatry? Even before they understand its full danger, what Paul is saying is you should run. You should get away from it. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 21, John writes, little children, keep yourselves from idols. See, if they had slipped back into idolatry or were strongly tempted to do so, the first thing you should do is flee. That word flee indicates a habitual present imperative. In other words, what it is, it means continually be fleeing from idolatry. It's not something you ever stop doing as a believer. You've got it all around you in society. Turn your back and get out of there. Run from it. That's what Paul's saying. See, but because of their salvation, they were Christians, Paul indicates. Most of them there were Christians. Maybe some weren't, but most of them were. They had divine guidance in understanding this. And that's why down in verse 15, he says, I speak to you as sensible people. That word sensible really means intelligent. In other words, you have the information other people don't. And Paul gives them the benefit of the doubt. And he assumes that if they listen carefully, look at what he says. He says, I speak as to sensible people or intelligent people. Judge for yourselves what I say. In other words, he's saying you have the very spirit of God within you. Listen to what I'm saying. And if you think about it, it makes sense. It makes sense. His exhortation is, is very simple. It's scriptural. It's logical. And he's calling them to judge what I say. In other words, he's saying it's not some obscure argument that I just came up with. This isn't something that you're going to have to be a genius to figure out. You're intelligent enough. You have the Spirit of God. You're a Christian. You can figure this out. Use your own mind. You must come to the conclusion that the force and logic of what I say is true. And so he's telling them that they're, they're capable of seeing his clear argument. They're able to judge it. And he's telling them to run from idolatry. He's basically saying, you know what, if you think this through, guys... You'll do the same thing and you'll obey what I say. You'll, you'll come to the same conclusion. Well, what is this idolatry that Paul's speaking of? Let's look at this term, idolatry, there in verse 14. Flee from idolatry. Idolatry is probably one of the most serious sins that there is. Idolatry is worshiping something other 
than the true God in a true way, in a biblical way. It's the most serious and probably the most contaminating of sins because it strikes at the very character of who God is. See, those who worship an idol declare that the Lord is not the only true God. And so what do they do? They make other little gods that they think are worthy to share his glory and his honor. They testify of the Lord's deficiency. They speak that he is not all wise, so we have to have another God beside him. That he's not all powerful, so let's pray to this God over here. He's not all sufficient, so let's look to this God, this idol, to meet our needs. See, it's not accidental or incidental that the first two commandments are prohibitions that have to do with idolatry. If we don't have the right view of God, nothing else can be seen with the right perspective. If your view of God is skewed, then you're going to have real problems. And see, that's the problem with so many in our modern-day churches today. They're not teaching theology. They're not teaching who God is. They're not teaching the attributes of God. They're not teaching the characteristics of God. So you have a vast majority of so-called Christians in churches that are learning how to maybe have a better marriage or raise a proper child or, or put more money in their wallet, have their best, best day now, but you know what? They're missing it. And the reason they're missing it is because they're not being taught about who God is. Since the fall of man... Men have wanted to make God over in their own images and to their own liking. We see this happening all the time. A.W. Tozer is quoted to have said this, A God begotten in the, shadow, in the shadows of a fallen heart will quite naturally be no true likeness of the true God. What's he saying? He's saying you don't have the right to come up with a God in your own making because your heart's filled with sin clearly you can't come up with something as wonderful as what god is and idolatry by the way includes much more than just bowing down or or burning incense to some physical image idolatry is having any false god that can be an object that can be an idea that can even be a philosophy a habit an occupation a sport even Whatever it is that has one's primary concern and loyalty. And it decreases one's trust in the loyalty of the Lord. That's what an idol is. There is no other God but the God of the Bible. And the Bible says that he's a jealous God. He won't tolerate the worship of another Isaiah chapter 48, verse 11, God says, My glory will I not give to another. Exodus 34, 14 says, You shall not worship any other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. See, we associate jealousy with sin, but don't forget one of the characteristics of God, one of the attributes of God is that he's perfectly holy. So somehow God is able to be jealous 
and yet pure, perfect. And the world worships false gods all day long. In the book of Romans, chapter 1, verse 21, we see this played out for us. Paul writes, he says, For although they knew God, who? The world, they knew God. They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, useless. And it says their foolish hearts were darkened. Verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools. Boy, we see that a lot, don't we? And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creepy things. I mean, we live in this today. In our modern day society, you know what? You can go and kill an unborn child and nobody says anything. But boy, you're caught roughhousing with your pet, dog or whatever. I mean, the authorities are all over you. They'll lock you up for cruelty to animals. Now, we shouldn't be cruel to animals. I'm not saying that. But I'm just saying that the comparison doesn't hold any water. You're going to allow the unrestricted murder of a human being, of a child, and yet you're going to put someone away in prison for abusing their, their pet, Confusing times we live in. It says they refuse to worship God. In other words, they turn to false gods. And God says that's unacceptable. And verse 24 of, of Romans 1 tells us what happens, the consequences of worshiping a false god. What are the consequences, you may ask? Well, it says right there, God gave them over to the lusts of their hearts to impurity. Verse 28 adds, God gave them over to a depraved mind. See, it starts small, and then it begins to snowball. See, the results of their improper worship was that God simply gave them over to their sin and their consequences. That's what we see living out before us today. Can you think of anything worse? Their sin increasingly became the dominating factor in their lives. And ultimately, they faced judgment without any excuses it tells us that at the end of chapter 1. Everyone worships something, even an atheist. What do they worship? They worship themselves. When men reject God, the true God, they worship false gods. That's what idolatry is. And that's exactly what God forbids in the first commandment. False gods may be either material objects or mystical objects, supernatural beings, Even in the book of Job, chapter 31, Job speaks of this in verse 24. He says, If I have put my confidence in gold and called fine gold my trust, if I have gloated because my wealth was great and because my hand had secured so much, if I have looked at the sun when it shone or the moon going in splendor and my heart became secretly enticed and my hand threw a kiss from my mouth, that too would have been an iniquity, calling for judgment. For I would have, look at what he says, denied God above. That's in Job 31, verses 24 to 28. See, that describes a man who refuses the inclination to worship his material wealth. Job says, 
yeah, I'm tempted to worship everything I have. He was a, he was a very wealthy man. But he's refusing to do it. See, if you worship what you possess, if you center your life on just yourself, your possessions, or even your needs, the Bible says you have denied God. Some formulate supernatural gods, supposed deities. That too is unacceptable. In verse 20 of chapter 10 here in 1 Corinthians, things sacrificed to idols are really sacrificed to demons, he says. So if men worship false beings, they are actually worshiping the demons that impersonate those false gods. That's very serious. Why? Because we're made in God's image. We're not made of silver or stone or wood. We don't need to worship those things. Well, idolatry has many forms. And we want to cover this quickly, but several points there in your outline. Hopefully you have your outline downloaded or you have it there in front of you. You can follow along. Idolatry has many forms. And the first one here, the first point is it basically slanders the character of God. That's what idolatry is. It's slandering the character of God. This form includes believing the true God to be something other than he is. People all the time make God in their own image. I can't count the times I've talked to somebody. And when I've talked to them about sin and maybe a judgment of God, they say, well, that's not the God I serve. My God is love. See, we're all guilty of some form of idolatry. Some people think of the Son of God only as Jesus. In other words, you know, the man with the beard and the flowing hair and, you know, kind and compassionate and gracious. And some people use that name above all other to describe their God. Well, I just want to have the love of Jesus. I just want to love you like Jesus loved. There's nothing wrong with talking about Jesus but there's something wrong with forgetting what his name truly is. His name is the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not just Jesus. There's thousands of people down in Mexico that go by that name. See, he is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the second person of the Trinity. He is our friend. He is our brother. But infinitely more, than that he is our Lord and Savior, our God. We can't lose sight of that. And we're guilty of slandering God when we do not trust him, when we doubt that he is able or he's willing to meet every need that we have. He promises to do so. See, when we doubt God, we say in our hearts, you know what, I have a question of whether your word is really reliable. We don't really believe your promises are true or your power is sufficient or your love is even unlimited. Therefore, I'm going to take this into my own hands, God. So we libel or we slander the very character of God. That's a form of idolatry. Secondly, worshiping the true God in the wrong way is idolatry. See, you can be focused on the real God, the true God, but you can worship him in a way that is idolatrous. When men establish unbiblical forms and rituals, and, and neglect biblical worship from the heart. 
They set up idols. They'd come between the worshipers and God. Even though their forms and, and their services and everything are intended to honor his name and for his glory, they put a obstacle there called an idol. At any time they adopt worldly practices in church services, they're setting up idols that detract from true worship. We see this a lot in our days today. I've been in church services where people are running all over the place, flip-flopping on the, the floor. You can't even hear yourself think. It's pure chaos. And they call that worship. Worshiping God in the wrong form is unacceptable worship. It's a form of idolatry. Think back in Exodus chapter 32, verses 1 to 4, when the Israelites were idolatrous. They were worshiped Worshipping that golden calf in the wilderness. And if you read that text, it says that they actually wanted that calf to represent the true God of Israel. They wanted something they could see. And making idols of any sort was strictly forbidden in the second commandment. In Exodus 32, verses 7 to 9, it records God's response when the Israelites made that golden calf to worship it says, then the Lord spoke to Moses, go down at once for your people whom you brought up from the land of Egypt. I always chuckle when I read that because it's almost it's kind of like parents, you know, when, when the little boy gets in trouble and the wife says to the father, you need to go talk to your son. <laughs> well, wait a minute, he's your son too. Or the mother says, you know, same thing about the daughter. Well, here, God is fed up, and he says, Moses, go down to your people. He doesn't even call them his own people anymore. They have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded him. They have made for themselves a molten calf, an ox, and they're worshiping it, and they've actually sacrificed to it. And they said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. What did they do here? They, they constructed a molten calf and they worshipped it in the name of the true God. But they had reduced him to this image of an idol. Later in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 14 and 19, Moses says to the assembled Israelites, and the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and judgments that you might perform them in the land where you are going over to possess. So watch yourselves carefully, since you did not see any form on the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb from the midst of the fire, lest you act corruptly and make a graven image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of an animal that is in the earth, the likeness of a winged bird that flies in the sky, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water below. In other words, he covers all the angles here. He says, don't make any images. And beware lest you lift up your eyes to heaven and see the sun and the moon and the stars and the host of heaven and will be drawn away and worship them and serve them. Those which the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. 
what happened here? God revealed himself to the Israelites. But you know what? When he did that, he wasn't represented in any visible form. They couldn't see him physically. There was no physical representation of God. And that is true of God throughout the scriptures. Why? Because God does not want to be reduced to an image. I mean, we think of, you know, some people think of God as that old man with the beard sitting in the rocking chair waiting at the pearly gates. That's contrary to what the Bible says. It's unacceptable. See, idolatry doesn't begin with the sculptor's hammer or the sculptor's chisel. It doesn't begin with that. It begins in one's mind. When we think of God, we should visualize absolutely nothing because we're not told anything. No visual conception of him should properly represent his eternal nature and glory. Whatever we think that we want God to be, that is so far below who God is. We don't have the right to do that. And so you see here that libeling the name or the character of God is idolatry. Worshiping the true God in the wrong way is idolatry. But then also worshiping any image is idolatry. Worshiping any image. Now this is the most literal and obvious kind of idolatry. This is probably what we think of most when we think of idols. And these, this is what's frequently denounced in the Old Testament. It's the kind of idol in which a person makes an image with their own hands and falls down before it and worships it, as Isaiah 44, 17 says. He also prays to it. And he says, deliver me, for thou art my God. I mean, how blasphemous is that? Even statues or other images of Christ are not to be revered or worshipped. I grew up in a church, the Catholic, the Roman Catholic Church. I mean, that, they were just steeped in that. And you can go in churches today of Catholics and, and see all the, the images that they worship. See, it's wrong. The Bible says we shouldn't do it. Even statues or other images of Christ are not to be worshipped. Only Christ himself, his person, is to be worshipped, not likenesses of him. They do not represent Jesus Christ, no matter what our claims or our intentions might be. Why? Because John 4, 24 says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him, how? In spirit and truth. You know, that's how the whole Catholics and the, the, the uh, Orthodox Church, they split over that. The Catholics wanted all these idols and all these images, and the Orthodox Church said, no, we shouldn't be doing this. We should be on guard, whether in public worship services or private devotions, about associating even any place, picture, or pattern of worship too closely with God. You know, that's one thing that hopefully we've learned through this virus, this COVID-19 pandemic that's sheltered us in place. So just because we're home, I mean, it's wonderful to come out and fellowship together, don't get me wrong, 
But that shouldn't stop your worship. That shouldn't stop you turning on your iPad or your, your internet and tuning in the message and hearing it week after week, even though we can't gather together. See, some people think they can only worship in this building. This building becomes an idol to them. And that's just simply wrong. It's easy for such a thing to come between us and him. Though we may think it helps us draw closer to him. It's an idol. Don't worship images. Also, worshiping angels is idolatry. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 18, Paul warns us, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and, look at what he says, the worship of angels. That's something that's very prevalent today. There's people that have statues of angels in their car. and you know The Bible doesn't tell us a whole lot about angels. There's only um, a couple angels mentioned, and uh, three of them basically, and one of them is Satan. <laughs> so you got two out of three that you could possibly worship. Yeah, hopefully you don't want to worship Satan. But it's important to understand that we're not called to worship angels. In Revelation chapter 19 verse 10, what happened, John had this vision and he was swept into the presence of God and, and he was in front of some angels. And John fell at the feet of the angel who was speaking to him in this vision. And the angel responded to, to John, hey, get up off your feet. You don't worship me. I'm not God. I'm just an angel. I'm a fellow servant of yours and your brother who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. And that's a holy angel talking to John. And so angels are created beings just like us, whether they're fallen or holy, but we're not to be worshiping angels. We also should not worship demons. That's a form of idolatry. Closely associated with worshiping images, usually there's a demon behind those images. A lot of satanic cults, uh, demons are worshiped directly. They call out their names. They worship Satan. Speaking of the tribulation in Revelation 9.20 John says, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor as, or so as, to, so as not to worship demons and the idols of God and of silver and of brass and of stone and of wood. They didn't repent of these things. Worshiping demons is just another form of idolatry. This seems kind of odd, but another form of idolatry is worshiping dead men. I saw this a lot in the Catholic Church growing up, referring to idolatry that Israel learned from Moab. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 106, verse 28, he says, They joined themselves to Baal Peor and ate sacrifices offered to the dead. They worshiped the dead. Thus they provoked him to anger with their deeds and the plague broke out among them. We don't worship human beings, dead or alive. 
just because somebody calls themselves a saint. You don't worship that person. Even great heroes of the Bible, Abraham, Moses, David, the prophets, and yes, even Mary, the mother of our Lord. We're not called to worship her. That is idolatry. Well, basically you have to understand that supreme loyalty in our heart to anything other than God is idolatry. Supreme loyalty in our heart. See, this kind of breaks it down to where we live today, right? We may not be out worshiping some carved image or a rock or a piece of wood, but every person is tempted with ambitions, with desires, with possessions, recognition. And those things can easily become idols. It was our Lord, Lord Jesus Christ, who said in Matthew 6, 21, where your treasure is, what? There will your heart be also. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The greatest heart treasure or heart idol is self. We even have a, a show called American Idol. Now, it's great to see people, talented singers get up there, but it just shows you how prevalent that is in our society. Well, covetousness can also be idolatrous. Those who covet, who, who are greedy, they worship at the shrine, uh, the shrine of materialism. And this is one of the most powerful idols of our day. Paul says in Ephesians 5, verse 5, For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater, it's a form of idolatry, has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Don't be coveting the things of this world. This world is passing quickly before our very eyes. Well, lastly here, wrongly placed desires or lust can be very idolatrous. Uh, Philippians chapter 3, verses 18 to 19, Paul says, The enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite or belly. <laughs> Ouch. One translation says, And whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. That word, their appetite or belly, really is referring to lust or desire. You just can't get enough of what this world has to offer. A person whose mind and desires and longings and appetites are wrongly set on fleshly things is an idolater. Because in the end, you're not going to take any of this stuff with you. Well, how does idolatry affect us? We'll close with this point. How does idolatry affect us? Well, number one, it defiles us. The Bible says it defiles us. And what that means is it renders us sinful. When we allow idolatry into our lives, we are living in a sinful way. It brings sin upon us rather than righteousness. Now, praise God for his grace. He continually cleanses us of our sin. Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 7 says, Defile not yourselves with idols. Idols have a defiling effect whether they're the idols of Egypt or whether it's 
the idol of golf or of food or of music, whatever it might be. It interrupts our righteousness before God. And it affects both believers and unbelievers, by the way. God does forgive those who are in Christ, praise the Lord. But it's no less idolatrous and no less defiling. Well, secondly, it's not only defiling, but it also has a polluting effect on everybody. <laughs> it has a polluting effect on everybody. When someone allows idolatry into their life, it affects everybody who's around them as well. A little group of people began worshiping Baal in the life of Israel. Pretty soon, it had national consequences. In Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 18, he says, Wherefore I poured my fury on them for the blood that they had shed on the land and for their idols by which they had polluted it. See, idolatry not only has a devastating effect on us personally, but it has a polluting effect on everyone else that I touch. Thirdly, think about this. Idols can't do anything for you anyway, so why prop them up in your heart? They have absolutely no power. There's only one true God that can assist you with your problems. Don't go to your other idols you don't have one idol in your life that is going to be any use to you. I mean, you can think of maybe the wealth you have. You know what? You get into real problems. There's people that have all the money in the world, and they got major problems in their life, and all their money can't help them. There are very educated people who made their education an idol. But you know what? They're still miserable. You can't turn to your big house or your bank account or your great job that you may have. Isaiah 46, 7 has a great take on this. 46, 7, it talks about idolatry. It's kind of interesting how he discusses it. He says in verse 7, they lift it to their shoulders, speaking of their idol. They carry it. They set it in its place. And it stands there. It cannot move from its place. This is the idol that they're worshiping, by the way. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. See, this is the point. Idols can't help you. They can't do anything for you. One last thing in Ezekiel 44, verse 10. It points out that idols bring upon us guilt that affects God's vengeance. That should put the fear of God in our heart. It brings upon us guilt that affects or activates God's vengeance. In Ezekiel 44.10, says, The Levites that are gone away far from me, this is the Lord speaking, when Israel went astray, who went astray from me after their idols, they shall even bear their iniquity. See, idolatry always has a guilt associated with it. When you worship a false god, you render yourself guilty. And that, you see, brings down God's vengeance. 
You put yourself in a position for the chastening of God in your life. A man who lives worshiping anything other than the true God or worshiping even the true God in the true biblical way through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is in a position where God's vengeance is activated against him. Idolatry is listed amongst the vilest sins in the flesh in Galatians chapter 5. And the Lord makes it clear that no idolater will inherit his kingdom in Revelation 21.8 and also in chapter 22, verse 15. So idolatry is not only offensive against God, it's harmful to men. It defiles those who practice it. It's harmful to everyone around them. It defiles a person by rendering them spiritually impure. An unbeliever is pushed further from God and his way by idolatry. And a believer violates the purity of his relationship with his heavenly father whenever he practices idolatry. But praise the Lord, God is gracious. God forgives and cleanses the believer. But his sin is still defiling and sinful. We need to make sure that idolatry has no place in our hearts and in our lives. Every idol is man-made. And every idol is helpless to help you. They can only defile. They never glorify God. But always, always dishonor him. Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for the word of the Apostle Paul, speaking of idolatry. We thank you for the examples in scriptures warning us about idolatry in our hearts. Lord, we don't want to slander the character of God. We don't want to worship the true God in a wrong way. We don't want to be caught up into the worshiping of images or angels or demons or even dead people. Because all those are forms of idolatry. Our supreme loyalty belongs to you. And when we fail to give you that supreme loyalty in our heart, it is because of idolatry. Help us not to covet the things of this world. Help us not to have wrongful desires or lusts. But Lord, help us to trust in you to meet our needs. Our true God, the God who loves us, the God who provided the way of salvation for us. Lord, if there's anyone listening to this message even now who has yet to put their faith or trust in Christ, Lord, he's the only God. You are the only God that there is. So I would encourage you, if you're listening to this message right now, you need to cry out to the one true God. Ask God to save you. Ask God to forgive you. Ask God to shed the grace of his Son upon your heart and soul. That your sins may be covered in the blood of the Savior. That they be washed as white as snow. If you're listening right now and you've yet to put your faith, your trust in Christ, I pray now that you might cry out to him, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me from my sin. I want to turn from my sin to the Savior.
Help me in my unbelief. And as believers, I pray that we would learn to live a life that is honoring to you each and every day, Lord. Help us to guard against idolatry in our own lives. That we would not hinder our testimony here in this world. Lord, we may have the freedom in Christ to do many things, but always help us to ask, is that the best thing that we could do at that given time? Or does it potentially have other implications of harm to someone or offending someone, a brother or sister in Christ or even an unbeliever? Lord, our lives should be lived for you each and every day. Father, we pray for our country. We pray that you would restore peace, that you would restore wholeness to it, one heart at a time, through Christ. Lord, I pray that people during this pandemic and during these riots and everything, Lord, that's going on around us, I pray that they would be drawn to you as their God and creator. And Father, that you would make us whole. We thank you. We praise you. Pray for our week, that you would give us a good week. We look forward to meeting together next Sunday. Just pray as you would lead us and guide us through our preparation time for that. We thank you. We praise you in Jesus' precious name. All God's people said, amen.